Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange with Leander Young, where we dig into conversations with seasoned musicians to discuss their life, art, and the faith of jazz as they see it. In this episode, we interview a third-generation musician from Pennsylvania, Benny Bendak III. Well, thank you for joining us, Benny. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. Thank you for having me. All things considered, you know, I'm I'm going on weeks and weeks in my apartment, so we're going a little crazy inside, but uh, doing podcasts is a great way to pass the time, so I'm happy to be here. Well, I love your live streams also, man. I mean, your New York, New York song, <laughs> felt that, man. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's all we have these days, you know, everybody's kind of recording in their in their apartments and then mashing it up together. So, you know, we've, we've all become amateur Jacob Colliers overnight where everybody's doing these videos with, you know, everyone in the band in their own little box on the screen. And you just try and try and make music with people the way that you can. So we're all just trying to get by. Well, I appreciate it. And like I said, those songs are coming out great, I believe. So, Oh man, thank you. Could you tell the people a bit about yourself and who you are? Yeah, so this is uh, Benny Benack III. If we've got any new listeners of mine, new friends out there, trumpet player and vocalist, originally from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Uh, I come from three generations of jazz. So my grandfather, he's got the Wikipedia page. He's Benny Benack Sr. He was a Dixieland, you know, traditional jazz, New Orleans swing-style trumpeter back in Pittsburgh. And my dad plays the clarinet and saxophone, so... It's a family tradition. My mom is a vocalist and a voice teacher as well back in Pittsburgh, so I come by the music honestly. And I moved to New York to study at the Manhattan School of Music when I was 18 after high school, and it's been a decade in New York now. And uh, I'm actually sitting here in my apartment in Harlem in the middle of the lovely COVID pandemic that we are all dealing with around the world. And New York is where I've been kind of making a name for myself. We talked a little bit off uh, off the interview about my new album that just came out at the end of January. Christian McBride was on the bass. I've got to work with his big band, Dream Come True for me. Great Veronica Swift sings a duet with me, and, and she has been on a meteoric rise through the jazz scene. I've known her since we were both you know, in, in school. And uh, pretty much under normal circumstances, I'm usually running from one place to another for a gig, traveling the world, running around New York City. We're not doing a lot of that these days, given the state of the world. But uh, we are still con- keeping connected with folks online and through podcasts and live streams and things like that. So my website's Benny Benack Jazz. I'm BB Jazz III on all the social medias. So if anybody out there wants to uh, keep up, that's how you can do it. And before we get into more about you, let's talk about yeah. your grandfather because he is, yeah, that's a hard yeah, he's one. Serious. <laughs> he's really serious, man. It's, he's one of those one of those musicians that, you know, um, he was in the military band when he was a young man and, you know, had his chops up as a bugle boy in, uh, I believe it was the Navy. And, you know, he spent some time in New York and he actually played in uh, you know some pretty prominent big bands and, and got to play with some guys who we all have heard of and you know some some incredible musicians and basically my my grandmother was waiting back home and and you know they were ready to start a family and he realized that that road life you know wasn't for him and he wanted to be home and have a family and I think a lot of musicians you know 
have to make that decision somewhere along the line in their career. And of course, it can be done to do both, but it requires, you know, a Herculean effort um, by both both parents, you know, to be able to balance the family and the music. And so, you know, he kind of came off the road and went back to Pittsburgh and really kind of, you know, became a local legend there as a player. And when people would come to town, you know, they would they would work with him and they're really big shoes to fill because he was really an incredible trumpet player. And actually, I started playing trumpet on my grandfather's instrument. One of his old trumpets was the first one that my parents ever put in my hands. So, you know, I, I walk in his shadow and, and try and live up to the, um, you know, the, the accomplishments that he did in his career. And, you know, it's been a great inspiration. He actually passed away before I was born. He, he, he passed away very young. It was lung cancer. All those, you know, nights in smoky jazz clubs back before anybody knew how bad it was for you to secondhand smoke, you know. And uh, so I only know him through the recordings that I've heard of him and a couple home videos and things like that. But, uh, yeah, it's definitely a, 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 a wonderful family legacy to, to carry on. Well, I'm more than positive he'll be proud of you right now. <laughs> oh, man. Thank you. So coming from Manhattan School of Music... What is something you learned both in the music world and outside of the music world? Well, I think it really it's a, it's a great advantage to be able to go to school in New York City. Um, and I talk to a lot of young students, people that are getting ready to pick where they want to go to school and things like that. And, you know, I always do say that there's no rush to get to New York City. You know, the, the jazz scene in New York is the best in the world. It's not going anywhere you know, you don't have to be in a hurry to get here and start running out to jam sessions when you're 18, 19 years old. And in the case of most young people, they probably would be better suited by just locking themselves up in a practice room for a few years and, you know, not emerging, so to speak, until they're a little bit more finely tuned, myself included. But I will say going to school in New York, if, if you can do it, is a great asset because you're learning from the best faculty in the world. You're surrounded by the most talented peers you could be. But then also, you know, in between classes, when you don't have a 9 a.m., you know, ear training seminar the next day, you can go down to the village and hear your heroes and just get that direct inspiration, you know, and, and get a chance to interact with the people that you've looked up to your whole life. So, you know, I learned a lot. Manhattan School of Music was a great program. Um, I learned a lot. I developed certainly a lot as a player. I had a great relationship with my private teacher, Lori Frank, who has since passed away. But, you know, of course, it was also a crash course and jam session etiquette and going out. And, you know, one thing that I can say I learned outside of school was the value of being able to get up early in the morning and take care of business on no sleep because, all those nights that me and my buddies were running around the village at these jam sessions, getting home at four in the morning and then waking up, you know, three hours later to go to class. <laughs> I didn't realize at the time, but it was really great preparation for the professional world where, you know, you might be out playing a late concert and then have to wake up at the crack of dawn to catch your train or your plane or your bus or your, you know, ferry the next day and then you got to show up somewhere and play a concert and you haven't slept more than a few hours and nobody out there knows that and nobody cares they just want to see a great show they paid for so you know uh, one of the most valuable skills i learned in school was how to function on no sleep and uh, certainly it's served me well throughout my career 
Okay. And when you were a jazz student, how did you see the jazz world versus now? Um, well, I mean, I, I can't say that it's categorically different now than, you know, I, I might have seen it as a kid. The only thing is, uh, you know, the longer I have been in it and, you know, kind of the, the more I realize what a journey it is, you know, and, and maybe when you're a younger person and in my case, you know, I, I was sort of an overachiever every you know, summer program I could audition for every scholarship grant, every competition. You know, I, I was just an audition fiend. I was I was sending in auditions for everything that I could get my hands on, and you know, was fortunate to uh, you know do well in a lot of competitions and be accepted into a lot of summer programs. And you know, it's how I met a lot of my friends even today. Um, but you know, you kind of get used to winning. You know, and and I went to Manhattan School of Music, and I was on a full scholarship, and you know, was a underclassmen and in all the top bands and all the ensembles and you know you're really kind of feeling good about yourself and then you kind of you know step out into the real world and now all of a sudden you know you're one of many incredibly accomplished talented you know wonderful musicians and you're all fighting for the same slice of pie you know and so I think maybe when I was younger, I was kind of expecting things to just fall into place the way they had been, you know, leading up until that point. And, you know, I probably just realizing from a lot of older musicians that gave me great advice that said, you know, this, this is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And the people that, you know, make it in this business are the ones that have staying power and kind of, you know, slow and steady wins the race and just keep putting out music and just, you know, keep showing around your face, keep getting better, keep growing. And it gradually happens. You know, there's not really this, you know, American Idol confetti coming down moment where you're all of a sudden signed to a big record deal and you're, you know, on a label and you're on a magazine cover. It's really much more of a, you know, kind of a slow burn as you kind of uh, make your way through the through the scene here. Oh, that's. Sadly, the truth. American Idol, I believe, did more harm to the music world than good. <laughs> right? I know, man. Okay. Well, what is something else that people seem to misunderstand about the music world? Oh, geez. Well, I would say there's definitely, um, you know, talking about the album that I just put out. There's a, there's a, always, you know, a lot of discussion in the in the music scene and the jazz scene about what's happening with streaming you know, as they call them, DSPs, digital streaming providers, your Spotify, your Apple Music, your Tidal, what have you, um, and kind of the effect of that on, you know, CD sales and, and how musicians make their money. And something that I've noticed, you know, I put out both of my records myself. I put all my own money into it. I paid for the mixing. I paid for the engineers. I paid the musicians. I paid for the PR. You name it. Um, I had to fork over the money for it. But uh, what that does give me is the freedom to work with the people that I want. And I have to say, um, you know, there are certain sects of the jazz community that are maybe a little bit kind of behind. You know, other styles of music are, you know, maybe that skew younger in the audience. They're able to adapt quickly and take advantage of some of these, you know, some of the good things about streaming music and YouTube and the ways you can reach your audience um, and sometimes some of these jazz record labels that, you know, you would think to yourself, or I should say, I thought to myself growing up, oh gosh, I just want to get this record deal. That's, that's, you know, the, the apex of anyone's career. 
And I realized that in some cases, you know, these record labels are still trying to put out music and do things the way they've been doing things for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years. And it's just different now. So, you know, I think the days of kind of hunting down a record deal and just sitting back and letting them take care of everything and, you know, you just worry about the music, those, those days are gone. But, you know, what the streaming world does give you is an opportunity to broaden your audience like never before. I mean, I have people that have found my album you know, around the world and write me on Instagram and say they're huge fans of my playing. And when will you ever come to Argentina? You have, you have so many fans in Argentina. We're waiting for you. And I think, well, that's pretty cool. I, I don't know it, if I would have been able to get that, you know, kind of outreach in, in a different time. So, you know, I try to look at the positives of it. And I, I really want to see the jazz community adapt and, you know, embrace kind of the new way that people are consuming music and, you know, just basically evolve or die, you know, and, and I want to see the jazz, you know, I don't want jazz to, to be a dinosaur and go extinct. I, I want to see it survive. So I'm hoping the jazz community can learn to embrace fully, um, you know, the way people consume their music now. Well, I could say just off the people I had on my podcast so far, jazz is not going to die. And yeah, man, I personally love the streaming sites. I know Pete, I'm not supposed to say that as an artist myself, but right. like you said, I could listen to anything, anywhere, right. and discover a whole bunch of people I never would have heard before. Right. And you know, the other thing is like, it's not like the older kind of models or the ways that people reach music are invalid. I mean, I think it's all the above. It's both. You know, people still want to buy even CDs at concerts. And they'll come up and say, oh, I don't even have a CD player, but I just want to support you. And I just loved your music. And you can still sell a pile of CDs on gigs that way. And, you know, I go and fill orders from my website. People are still buying CDs and, and, and merch and things like that. Um, so it's not like you have to pick one or the other. I mean, I still think we were talking about the radio station. You know, I, I spent a lot of money on radio PR. I've been on the Jazz Week charts for, I think, 13 weeks and counting. And you can't put a price on you know, that kind of exposure and, you know, people are still out there spinning records and listening to the radio and you have the online radio. So, you know, it, it, it's not one or the other, you know, I just think things are evolving. I agree with that. You kind of killed that. So I can't really add <laughs> much to that. <laughs> so what is something you noticed about the music scene recently? Something I've noticed about the music scene recently. Well, I, I can go recently as, you know, the, the since you came to New York. Yeah, since you came okay. to New York. Okay, since I came to New York. Well, let's see. Uh, I, I think, you know, it, it, it's hard for me to think in terms of, you know, really what, what things were like before I got to New York because, I, you know, I came here as an 18-year-old. I was a pretty young kid. But um, I would say the music scene in New York, um, since I've been here, um, hasn't changed fundamentally, but the the faces change pretty quick. You know, New York is definitely a place that is not for everyone. And what I mean by that is that the pace of this city, the energy of this city, um, is is really frenetic, right? It's really electric, and um, you don't necessarily get that in other cities, even where there might be a good jazz scene, there might be some clubs, but in New York, it's just 
relentless. You know, every hour of every day, there is some amazing band playing somewhere. And, you know, I think for some people, maybe they're not suited for that and they need, you know, a little less stimulation or they need time to kind of be alone and catch their breath. And, you know, New York doesn't really offer that. It's such a, you know, everything's on the go all the time kind of city. And I think there's really two kind of people. There's the the kind of people that eventually New York chews them up and spits them out and they can only handle it for so long and, you know, they have a breakdown and, you know, they, they realize it's not for them. And then there's the people that are actually, you know, energized by that, you know, that are inspired by that and that kind of frenetic energy actually is what keeps them going. So, you know, the, the scene hasn't changed necessarily. You know, the jam sessions are still there in the West Village every night. You know, there's still tourists that are going to come in and pay their cover charge at Birdland and Blue Note and Dizzy's. And, you know, the scene is going to be there, but the faces do change. You know, in the 10 years I've been in New York, there's a lot of, a lot of changing faces. There's not that many people that I met when I first got here, you know, that are still around. You know, I mean... I shouldn't say that there are a lot of people, but as many people as there are that stick around, there's even more that kind of come in and, you know, take their hacks as long as they can and then get out. So I've been very fortunate to uh, not not be uh, worn out by New York City yet. I'm still hanging in there. We're up here in Harlem. So I've, I've been grateful. The city has been great for me. The scene's been great for me. And, you know, I just want to get back out there and keep uh, keep it moving. Okay. So where do you think jazz will be in 10 years? Oh, geez. So that's a good question. You think it'd where be do bigger? I... Do you think it'd be smaller? Be a hundred percent real? Um, you know, I don't, I don't think there's necessarily going to be, you know, people have said, because we're coming into the twenties, you know, you see the memes out there and everybody said, Oh, it's going to be the roaring twenties again. Jazz is making a comeback. And, you know, outside of a couple great Gatsby memes. I don't think that makes that much of a difference, honestly. I, I think, you know, I think jazz's place in the in the music world and in the kind of cultural, you know, societal mind is kind of set. You know, they they say we have our one percent of the overall music share in the world. And, you know, one percent of the world is still a pretty dang big audience, enough that there's jazz clubs in every major city and there's young people out there. And, you know, that's one thing social media has shown me is that Jazz is always going to have um, a strong pipeline of young people, you know, playing it and enjoying it. And it, it always surprises me every time, you know, I see on Instagram, somebody's posting a transcription of Social Call, the duet that I did with Veronica on the album. And, you know, from all over the world, all these young people. And the first thing I think of is, wow, I, when did I get old? When did there become, you know freshman in college transcribing my record you know that was me feeling like it was yesterday but now i guess it wasn't it was it was pretty decade ago um so you know i'm not worried about jazz disappearing um but like i said i think i think jazz has to adapt and has to evolve and kind of look to more commercial and, and popular styles of music and the way that they've streamlined how they get their music to people um, and just kind of embrace that because, you know, the elephant in the room that now people have been talking about for decades with jazz is that it is this older audience. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, jazz groups and nonprofits and clubs and festivals and tours and things like that that are, you know, getting older and they're not going to be around forever. And, 
you know, jazz needs to be ready to cater to this younger audience. And, you know, that's something that I'm passionate about in my social media is embracing, you know, who I am and what I am and, you know, not being afraid to have that spill over into my promotion of myself as a jazz artist. And what I mean by that is, you know, if I'm going to be, you know, sending gifts and sending memes and, you know, using s- stupid filters on Snapchat and sending them on my Instagram story and, you know, kind of just doing what every other, you know, young person uses social media for and kind of having fun with it. But then I go on my Instagram and what the people that I my, I think of my, excuse me, my audience, mm-hmm. you know, I post all these really serious pictures of me looking off into the distance and I try and, you know, paint myself as this really serious jazz artist because that's what I think people think of when they think of a jazz artist. No, I mean, I, I want to be that same guy. I want jazz to be memeable. I want jazz to, to, you know, to have gifts when I type in jazz, you know, on Giphy and I'm trying to throw something in a text message. I want there to be more than, you know, one picture of Louis Armstrong yeah, I and know have that be that. it. Like I, I want to see jazz on TikTok. I want to see jazz, you know, just kind of interwoven with the, you know, the hive brain of young people. And, you know, that's kind of one of my goals, you I know, mean, that's one I of my see. mission statements so that in 10 years there still is, you know, a, an audience. I've seen a few people do that really well. I seen Nathan, Nathan do it, Warrant do it. I seen Grace do it. So yeah. there are people doing that. Yeah, for sure. For sure. But you don't think that 1% of the market is a problem? Well, <laughs> you know, 2% would be better than 1 and 10 would be better than 2 and 20 would be better than 10. You know, I think we'd love to love to see that. Um, you know, for, for what it's worth, for my music, you know, I really, I try and play for that whole 1% and I try and make music that can be accessible beyond that 1%, you know, because there are a lot of people out there that, you know, they're not buying jazz records. They're not looking up jazz playlists on their Spotify, but you know, in their everyday life, when a jazz song comes on, you know, maybe their parents are cooking in the kitchen or something like that. You know, there is still an ear for it. You just need to cultivate that. And, you know, the, the, Jazz community can only hurt itself by, you know, the by jazz musicians kind of vibe. You know, we all know a lot of musicians like that. You go in New York, you know, people pay a lot of money. Maybe they're a tourist and they think that they want to see New York jazz. So they Google it. And they end up at Smalls. And, you know, maybe that night at Smalls, it's a pretty modern. It's a contemporary band. It's original music. It's odd meters. And, you know, all of all of these things that it's probably going to seem like a foreign language to, you know, Joe Bob tourist that came to visit New York, but the way that that music is presented goes a long way. You know, the way you carry yourself on stage, the way you interact with the audience, you know, that's going to dictate if this non-jazz listener is going to come to your music with an open mind, or if he's, you know, going to sit there and be mad that he just had to pay $17 for a gin and tonic and he thinks your music's weird and you're up there scowling on stage and nobody's talking and, you know, dressed, you know, like looking like, you know, you just slept, you know, in the subway the night before, you know. So I I think sometimes jazz community doesn't do itself many favors for audience outreach. And, you know, I'm I'm always thinking about the audience. I'm always thinking about ways I can bring people into the music, 
And, you know, I really try and present my music, even when we do some stuff that gets a little bit more, you know, venturous and it's not me necessarily, you know, singing New York, New York, which is maybe a little bit more universal, but it might be an original composition of mine. And, you know, it's instrumental and it's adventurous and the harmony is a little bit dense and, you know, things that typically jazz musicians play for other jazz musicians. But I, I really believe that even that type of jazz, you can have other people relate to it if you present it a certain way. So, you know, that that's my two cents about that. I, I would love for us to have more of that 1%, but a lot of it is going to come down to, you know, the way we all choose to present ourselves. Okay. So if you could turn back time, what advice would you give 18-year-old you? Oh, man. If I could turn back time, going to share. Um, <laughs> you know, probably what I was saying before about just the idea of marathon and, and not a sprint. You know, if I could go back and tell the 18-year-old me to just kind of slow down, take a breath. You know, you don't have to show the world everything you can do in every solo, in every measure, you know, and, and just kind of uh, let it come to you, you know, uh, because... I've definitely always been someone with a lot of kind of ambition and, and you know, I, I wanted everything, you know, all at once and wanted it all to happen for me and come together so fast. And, you know, I, I think over the last 10 years, you know, finishing school and being a professional, I've learned that, you know, things are going to fall into place. Things are going to happen exactly when they're supposed to happen. And, you know, for a lot of people, I think that, that having that patience and, you know, doing the hard work every day and, and kind of getting satisfaction in the little small victories, you know, that, that accumulate and add up as opposed to, like I said earlier, kind of waiting for your big, you know, the confetti's falling down. Now you've won jazz, you know, now one you're jazz. a star. <laughs> you know, this idea that, that that's how you make a career, you know, it's just not like that. And you got to just kind of embrace the, you know, like I said, embrace the journey. Okay. So what is the best compliment you ever received? Oh man. So many, so many. No. <laughs> uh best compliment. Well, you know, I, I, I like it when a lot of times people come up to me because I'm both a, a trumpet player and a singer. And people will come up, I'll get both sides. They'll say, Oh my gosh, I loved your singing. I wish you did that more. Why didn't you sing more? then another set, someone will come up to me and say, hey, you know, you only played trumpet on two songs. Like, you know, I, you're a great trumpet player. I like that way more than you're singing. Like, why don't you do that more? You know, but <laughs> every once in a while, uh, someone will come up and, and, and say a compliment that isn't about one or the other. And they'll just say, you know, when they just say, oh, you're so multi-talented, you're so talented, you know, whether you were singing or playing, you know, I felt like it was the same voice. You know, that's kind of that's kind of what I what I strive for. You know, that whether I'm singing or whether I'm playing trumpet or, you know, even when I'll hop on the piano a little bit, I just want it to be the same narrator, the same voice. You know, I don't, in my head, I don't think of them as kind of separate entities. You know, I, I like to think that my voice and my trumpet playing are kind of one. So it's nice when that translates to the audience and, you know, I get that kind of feedback because that tells me I'm on the right track. Okay. And if you could remove all barriers, all constraints, what type of project would you do and who would be on it? 
Hmm. Another great question. You got some good questions lined up there, Lee. I'm I'm digging it, man. You're making me think here. Um, you know, I probably it's so funny. I just got done talking about how I, uh, you know, how how I think of my singing and trumpet playing as one voice. But to totally counteract that, if if I had my choice, I would love to just do a project. You know, separate those two. And just do a project, you know, as a trumpet player, maybe all original music, you know, and and hire the musicians that I think really cater to that. And then do a project that is like maybe, you know, all early Frank Sinatra recordings, you know, when I'm only singing and I'm really focusing on that and find the musicians that are the guys that would really play the heck out of that style. You know, I mean, I the way that things are now, you know, you kind of have to mash everything together and you got to kind of show people what you can do in, uh, you know, these small little digestible bites. So the way I present my music, the musicians that I play with, I'm constantly trying to find people that are, you know, jack of all trade type people. that are comfortable in a lot of different styles and genres because we bounce around a lot in the shows. I mean, even on my, on my albums, there's a lot of, you know, stylistic contrasting from track to track. And I embrace that. But, uh, you know, if, if I had my if I had my choice, you know, if I had somebody just handing me blank checks to, you know, make four albums, maybe I would do the, uh, you know, Benny Benack sextet plays the music of Art Blakey. And I would just play the trumpet and live out my Lee Morgan, you know, Freddie Hubbard dreams and in, in the jazz messengers and, you know get Christian McBride and Ulysses Owens and, you know, Christian Sands, a buddy of mine on piano and Braxton Cook on alto and Chad Lefkowitz Brown on tenor, you know, get all these hotshot, you know, young lions, all my buddies here and, you know, just play some bop and play some straight ahead. And then, you know, when I do the album where I was singing, I would love to, you know, go to Capitol Records like <laughs> Buble and Harry Connick and, you know, get an entire studio orchestra in there and get, you know, some of these incredible arrangers, you know, get the next Nelson Riddle to arrange for a 60 piece orchestra, you know, do an album with strings. And, you know, I have a lot of, clearly you can tell I have a lot of these ideas bouncing around in my head. So I hope, uh, before all, all is said and done, I get a chance to do all of them. I'm looking forward towards those. That's all I could say. Yeah, man. <laughs> and you got a big career ahead of you. <laughs> I hope, man. I hope so. So before we go, we normally like to give a shout out or show our respects to artists who came before us. So I'm going to tell you an instrument and two artists. Choose one and tell us why. Now, uh, so I have to pick one or the other. Correct. Do you want okay. a modern one or do you want a more older one? Man, I, I trust you. You've been, you've been feeding me good questions all okay, day. Okay, I'm going to so. mess with your head here then. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm ready. On trumpet, Brian Lynch or Son Johns? Wow. Okay. Well, that's tough. That's tough. That's two Yamaha trumpet players right there and two guys that have been mentors for me. But if you're going to make me choose, I have to go with Sean Jones because Sean actually is a, a huge mentor of mine. He's really a kind of a big brother. Um, he was teaching at Duquesne in Pittsburgh when I was in junior high school. And at that time, he was already, you know, he had played with Lincoln Center. He would already he was putting out his first couple of solo albums. He was already a star in the jazz world. And it just seemed like, such a gift from the heavens that this you know, world-class trumpet player was just kind of hanging out in Pittsburgh, living, playing gigs, 
in the city that I grew up in. So I was his shadow for, you know, five years. I just followed him every club, every night he played. I was there. I wanted to sound just like him. You know, there was a time in Pittsburgh when everybody said they were worried about me because, you know, I sounded so much like Sean, you know, of course, everything down an octave because I didn't have the incredible facility that he does on the instrument, you know, one of the greatest in the world. But they actually said, you know, they were worried that I would find my own voice because I just was copying him so much because I was just enamored with his playing. I was just in love with him so much. And, uh, you know, of course, like every artist, your voice grows and becomes your own as you grow into it. But uh, Sean is, you know, on a very short list of people that have been the most impactful in my music career. So I think he's going to win. He's going to win a lot of those coin tosses. No shade to Brian Lynch, who, who I also adore. Okay. Tia Fuller or Grace Kelly on saxophone? Okay. 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 So now, now you're going, that's like, you know, LeBron James or Michael Jordan, because we're crossing generations now. So uh-huh. but that's they're both tough. modern. That's what that's I'm saying. Tough. Well, that's true. But, you know, Tia, Tia, Tia's, uh, you know, Sean would probably, you know, vouch for Tia because they've worked together and, you know, they're, they're friends. But I got to go with my friends because I've known Grace, you know, again, since we were both in high school. And she's a great friend of mine, and we played together a bunch. So, you know, I got to uh, I got to stick up for my girl there and uh, go with Grace. I mean, you know, you mentioned it before. She's someone that has a great grip on social media and engaging with her fans. Um, but she's always, you know, taking care of business on the bandstand, too. You know, I mean, I think her music has evolved. You know, she sings so much. She She's gotten into a lot of choreography. Um, with another friend of ours, Leo P, another guy who I grew up with in Pittsburgh, actually. Um, and Grace is always, you know, reinventing herself and, and thinking of new ways to broaden her audience and engage with her audience. And, you know, even the time that she was 16 years old, she was thinking about, you know, her future and, and what her next move is. And, you know, I've gotten to play a couple jazz festivals with her band. And she, you know, her parents have always been really, really great to me. And, uh, you know, she, she's a star and I love seeing all of her next moves. So she's a talent. You know. I like it for that. Yes. Oh okay. yeah. You got to get her on the podcast, man. I should hit her up. I should Let's do it. <laughs> Let's do it. On bass, Stanley Clark or Thomas Morgan. Oh man, you're, you, you're, you got some tough, uh, some tough questions here. I mean, I, I guess, I guess I would go with Stanley Clark, you know, just because, probably the more albums that I've happened to listen to and, and go back and say, oh man, who's that on bass? And then it turns out it's Stanley Clark, you know, so he, he gets my vote there. But again, it's a tough one. They're both, they're both monsters. Mm. I give you another one with both monsters on piano. Okay. Emmett Cohen or Christian okay. Sean? I mean, stands. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh my gosh, man. Well, now, now you're trying to get me in trouble because these are two, you know, two of my buddies, two of my classmates, you know, we all were at the Manhattan school of music together. And, uh, those are two guys I've made more music with on the piano than a lot of other folks. Um, oh gosh, I love them both so much, but you know, I have to say only because he's fresh in my mind, I'm going to say Emmett because we have been, um, co-quarantining together, you know, in the midst of this pandemic and we've done a lot of duo concerts because Emmett actually lives, you know, he's my next door neighbor. He lives right down the street. And we've both been in Harlem this whole time. 
and we haven't seen anybody else. And when I've had to do some live streaming shows and some private concerts, it's nice that he's got this grand piano, you know, right up the street and we're able to get together. So it's been nice because, you know, we're all here in shelter in place. We can't go hang out with a million friends and, and, you know, have jams and gigs like we used to. So I feel very lucky, quite frankly, that, you know, there he is right down the street and we're able to still make music together in the midst of this. So he's he, he gets the vote for recency bias because, uh, you know, he's been helping keep me sane throughout all this craziness with the pandemic. Okay. I mean, I think they're both talented. Emmett came oh, on the show before. Emmett is, when I say he's focused and driven, I love that about him. I love that. Yeah, man. Well, they both are. You know, yeah. Christian's another one that even when he was at Manhattan School, you know, he was he was finishing his undergrad and he was, you know, leaving class to go on tour with Christian McBride's trio. You know, I know and he's I know. <laughs> putting out his solo records. And, you know, I'm sure Christian and Emmett are two of the guys most hit by everything with COVID-19 because those guys are just on the road all the time. They're playing every club. They're playing every festival, you know, as band leaders, which is really impressive. So I'm inspired by both those guys, you know, their drive and their passion. Mm-hmm. So on drums, Allison Miller or Ulysses Owens? <laughs> well, you know, again, it's like if, if you're going to pick out one one person that's kind of from my, you know, my wolf pack, my inner circle, I as much as I respect Allison Miller, you know, I got to go with Ulysses because you know, he's played on both my albums and actually he was the producer on this most recent recording, A Lot of Living to Do, and really helped me kind of shape that album. I give him a lot of credit for that. And also he was one of the first older musicians to kind of give me a break and call me to go on the road and play with his band. You know, we had this band called the New Century Jazz Quintet that was putting out albums and recording in Japan. Um, and I think I, he asked me to join that band when I was 22 or 23 and I think the first tour was like the first summer that I had out of grad school, you know, when I had zero gigs in my book and except for wedding gigs, you know, mm. and he was asking me to go tour and play every city in Japan and make an album, you know, with Tim Green and Yasushi Nakamura and, you know, these musicians that were older than me that I looked up to. And he could have called any trumpet player in the world. Any guy would have been happy to do that. But Ulysses really took me under his wing um, and showed me the ropes and, and helped me grow my road chops. And, you know, I still am I'm happy to play with him. He's got a big band album coming out. We did live at Dizzy's last December and get to play with that group. And like I said, he, you know, he actually came back for the album release show at Dizzy's in January. He was in Europe. He flew back from Europe, went straight from the airport to Dizzy's to the soundcheck, played the gig, and then went back home repacked his suitcase and flew back to Europe the next day. So that's how much <laughs> Ulysses means to me. He flew to Europe and back in one day just to be there for my album release. So, you know, he means the world to me. Oh, I didn't know that. So, you know, understandable. Okay. Yeah, man. <laughs> so on vocals, because you're a singer. Yep. Henry Connick Jr. or Michael Boulette? Okay, well, that that's an easy one for me. You know, I said Tim Green from the New Century Band. Tim has actually played with Buble, and I have some buddies that play in Harry's band and some buddies that play in Buble's band. So, you know, I'm going to be upsetting someone no matter which answer I give. But uh, I got to go with Harry because at the time that he was, you know, at the height of his powers through the 90s and recording albums and selling out Madison Square Garden, you know, doing that whole thing, singing the national anthem of the Super Bowl, 
um, I was a kid and he was putting out those albums as I was growing up, growing into the music. So I listened to him so much at, at that really pivotal time when you're a young person and everything you listen to, you sponge up, you know? So Harry Connick, actually, that that's some, someone that I get that the most when people come up to me after shows. They say, you remind me of, and I get Harry Connick all the time. And I take that as a compliment. I think he's a marvelously talented guy. He's had an incredible career. And in many respects, I kind of, you know, would love to build my career off of his. You know, he's someone that kind of made his mark in the music world and branched out. He was on Broadway. He was on TV. He was on American Idol. He had his own daytime TV show. I went in the studio in New York and saw his, uh, you know, his kind of Ellen DeGeneres Oprah talk show. And just he's had a marvelous career. And, you know, he's a big inspiration to me. And of course, Michael Buble, I mean... So running around the world selling out stadiums, he he's had a pretty good career too. So, I wouldn't, uh, you know, I wouldn't sniff at either of them. But uh, I got to go with Harry because you know he's been with me longer on my journey. Okay, no problem there. So Benny, before we go, let everyone know where they find it. they can find your stuff again, your website, your social media, everything. For sure, man. Yeah. So uh, my website's Benny Benack Jazz, and I have you know all my albums for sale up there. And on social media, Instagram, Twitter, it's all BBJazz, III. I even made a TikTok over the quarantine. I'm trying to keep up with the kids. It's the same thing, BBJazz, III. And, uh, you know, I'm on all the, we talked about them, Spotify, Tidal, Apple Music. My YouTube channel is also BBJazz, III. You know, so pretty much we make it easy. If you just go into your computer or, you know, you ask Alexa, you ask Siri, Benny Benack, hopefully everything's going to come right up. So, would love to keep in touch with everybody. Thank you so much for having me, man. I'm in good company. You've got some great folks on here so far. Well, like I said, thank you for joining us, Benny. And we'll head out from here. And this is Leon Young from Improv Exchange. Thank you. Have a good day. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Leander. That's that on jazz. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Improv Exchange. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, please be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Improv Exchange. <laughs>